Welcome everyone to the MBIT Podcast, where we discuss tech, entrepreneurship, and venture capital. Today, Andrew Gazdecki, the CEO of MicroAcquire, joins us to discuss his company, making it easier for other people to buy companies on their platform. So first off, Andrew, it's a pleasure to be here with you today. I appreciate you taking the time to hop on the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited. So first off, let's start with some of your background and your experience in the startup industry. Uh, how far back you want to go? Um, we can go, uh, as far back as when you started your company business apps. Okay. Um, so yeah, business apps, that was a a SaaS company I started when I was, uh, 21. It was a drag and drop mobile app builder and it was a company I bootstrapped for about eight years and then sold it to a private equity firm. And the cool part about that story is uh, I started with no experience. I'm not a technical founder. I had no idea what I was doing. It was kind of like a right time, right place business. iPhone like just came out. And what we did as a company was we helped businesses make mobile applications, but our go-to-market strategy, we originally started selling one app at a time directly to small businesses. And then after, and I always say this, like just the importance of talking to customers. I talked to a customer in Switzerland who had built a few apps for some really nice Ramada hotels. And I assumed he owned the hotel. So I gave him a call and said, hey, congrats on owning hotels. And he's like, oh no, I don't own these hotels. I'm making these mobile apps on behalf of the hotels. I, I own a marketing agency. And he gave me the idea to create a white label reseller partner program where we essentially took our mobile app building software and we removed all branding of microquire and his company was called Venomat. And so we basically would have software with his logo, no association with business apps. And that allowed him to charge his own pricing and really kind of market the solution as kind of like a semi custom app development solution. And the business just kind of exploded. Um, web design companies all across the world were looking to add mobile development to their services that they offer, like web design, you know, digital marketing, and then mobile apps were so new, but no one knew how to build a good mobile app. No one knew it was expensive to hire mobile developers. And so we scaled the business from zero to, I believe, 7.3 million was the number. Uh, in the first five years. And then we eventually, when we sold the business, it was at about 11 million in recurring revenue. And what's, what's cool about that too, kind of proud of is um, we were ranked number 52 and then number 91 on Inc. Magazine's fastest growing companies. Um, so it was kind of like, again, like right time, right place business. We were like kind of the only shop in town for a little bit. But the, the key lesson there that um, I really, really, you know, learned and still apply today with businesses is the power of distribution. So we had all, we had 5,000 partners all across the globe selling our product for us. And um, that allowed us to stay lean, not have to raise a lot of capital. We essentially had a, you know, Salesforce uh, that we had no operational overhead and allowed us to really focus on the technology. Um, so it was a really fun company. It wasn't, I didn't build like a unicorn or anything like that, but it was a fun ride. Uh, definitely cool job straight out of college. So can't complain. For sure. And that brings us up to MicroAcquire. Would you mind talking a little bit more about what gave you the idea to start it and what MicroAcquire is? 
Yeah, so MicroAcquire is the largest startup acquisition marketplace in the world today. We have over 150,000 registered buyers. We've helped over 500 startups get acquired. In total, we've helped facilitate about half a billion in uh, acquisitions. And this is uh, mostly for SaaS companies, e-commerce companies, even communities, uh, some crypto companies. Really any sort of profitable software company is what we focus on. We don't focus on content sites or affiliate websites or anything like that. I got the idea because after I sold business apps, there were so many founders that I'm friends with that reached out to me, asked like, how did you get acquired? How'd you find the buyer? And it took me a long time to find a buyer. And I just thought the routes to selling your business are just so archaic and it's offline. And I looked at the market and there really hadn't been any innovation. There hadn't been uh, really any additional optionality to just make selling your, your startup easier. And so um, I love startups. I love working with entrepreneurs. So I built it just as kind of scratching my own itch, if you will, because it's a cool business. If you like start, I get to see the coolest startups yeah. all day long. But yeah, when you go to sell your business, you typically have usually three routes. One is the one that everyone's hoping for, which is the least likely. That's when a strategic company like Google or Facebook or whoever, big, big company reaches out to you and they go, we want to acquire you for a ridiculous amount. Boom. Uh, the other route is hiring an investment bank. And I worked with an investment bank to sell business apps. We got, we got a couple offers, but I remember telling them, like, this was an exact quote. I was like, you guys have the best job in the world. Like I do all this work. And then at the end you get this huge fee. That's, this is so awesome. And uh, just to give you some, uh, you know, an idea of their fee, their minimum fee was uh, 800,000 for uh, the transaction to close given the scale of the business. Now, if you're running, let's say a bootstrap startup though, and you know, maybe you're not at scale, you're not at, you know, 10 million in revenue. Your optionality for selling a business is pretty limited. So you may get approached by a private equity firm. You may get approached by a strategic, or you might work with a business broker and a business broker will take 10 to 15% of the sale of the business. So once I found, found that out, I just thought to myself, wow, okay. So the only way to sell these, you know, sub, let's call it $20 million startups is paying someone 10 to 15% commission. Um, I think there's kind of an opportunity to really auth automate, streamline, um, and standardize acquisition process and, you know, really give entrepreneurs, you know, empower them. So when they go and they meet with buyers or educated, they have all the tooling they need to successfully get uh, acquired. And you mentioned you have 150,000 plus vetted buyers and 500 startups that were sold. Do you see a current disconnect between the number of startups um, being sold in the number of buyers? Yeah, I mean, there's uh, it, it really depends on how you look at that. So we have 150,000 registered buyers, and then we have about 5,000 uh, premium buyers. So that would be buyers that pay for access to actually speak to startups. So there's a lot of interest in what I would describe as entrepreneurship through acquisition. And I'd expect a lot of those buyers to eventually make the jump, but it just goes to show you that I think in the last year we've seen last year was a record number in terms of 
mergers and acquisitions, private equity activity. But yeah, we definitely have a lot more buyers than um, startups listed for sure. So it's almost a, a seller's market, I guess you'd say. Got it. And what size startups are being sold on MicroAcquire? What's the range for that? Yeah, good question. The smallest startup was like 2000 and then the largest was 10 million. So it was a pretty big gap. The idea originally was I'd help startups within like, I never thought we'd cross 500,000 in terms of an acquisition, but the market of startups um, is so big that we quickly moved up market. And that's been one of our goals with MicroQuires to really facilitate what we call life-changing acquisitions, small, but small, I put in quotes, because 10 million is, is definitely life-changing. Um, unless you're like a billionaire or something like that. Uh, (laughs) It's important to note also, we don't list startups that are pre-revenue. We don't list ideas. We don't list domains. We list startups with customers, product market fit, traction. So you can buy a startup for 25,000, a hundred thousand, half a million, a million, um, and even above 10 million as well. And what's the process you go through to vet the startups that want to be sold on the platform? Good question. So the way that we first we look at the criteria and then we look at the financials to see if everything adds up and then we id verification every seller that goes on the platform and then we ask for proof of ownership and then we have different ways for sellers to verify their financials and their search traffic so you can connect stripe profitwell barometrics google analytics and we're working on some other um, integrations with like zero and uh, QuickBooks for expenses. So we do quite a bit of betting when we list startups, but we don't do anything like recasting a PL or putting together like a full deal book. Um, and basically what that means is like, that's what a typical investment bank or broker would do. Um, we give just basically high level information. We keep it all private. So the process when you're let's say you're a buyer and you want to speak to a seller, the listing is completely private. It'll read as like profitable SaaS company making 1 million in annual recurring revenue per year, 300,000 in you know, trailing 12 months profit. And then if they want more information on that business, um, they subscribe to MicroQuire Premium, which allows them to contact the buyer and, or excuse me, the seller. And the seller from there is able to do due diligence on the buyers as well. So we do betting for buyers as well. Make sure they have a working LinkedIn profile, a working bio profile picture, making sure that they are who they say they are. And then from there, a seller can give access to their private information, which includes their startup's name, their startup's URL, their PL, any sort of documents they may have uploaded. So it's, that's kind of the high level overview process of uh, selling a market car. And in the future, do you plan to create an accelerator and or a fund based off of the MicroAcquire brand, which would help coach founders through their entrepreneurial journey? No, I've heard about that a lot. But one thing you want to do with startups is you want to focus narrowly on one problem. An accelerator is a whole different beast in itself, even a fund. I've heard that request a lot. So you never know, maybe years down the road. But, you know, like if you were going to sell a business, like what are the legal steps? So we want to create tooling to facilitate creating a letter of intent or creating an asset purchase agreement or creating a stock purchase agreement. 
or tooling for helping you transfer assets securely, facilitating you know financing if you're going to be financing the deal with a third party. Basically, every step in the acquisition journey, we're building tools that uh, just streamlines it, but more importantly, standardizes it. So people that may not be in private equity and maybe they're not familiar with startup acquisitions, we give them confidence that this is how an acquisition should go. So both the buyer and the seller are on the same page. And that's kind of our, our narrow focus at the moment. Do you plan to provide access to those tools to, through courseware, videos, or articles, or how do you plan to do that? We're building them into the platform. So we have a, if you okay. go to microacquire.com, click resources at the top, we have a ton of information. Um, and that was another thing that I wanted to address when I built the company was there's so much information on, you know, how to uh, like market your business, how to raise funding for your business, how to like be active on like everything, but how to get acquired. And so we have articles that outline what is due diligence? What legal steps should you expect? How do you do technical due diligence on a startup? What are common deal structures? What's the difference between a strategic buyer and a financial buyer? So if you go in the micro and then we also do monthly webinars to educate buyers and sellers on how to sell their business or for buyers on how to you know, properly run an acquisition process. So we have created a course. It's completely free. We're, we're a product company. So we're focused on building the tooling inside of the marketplace rather than just courses and, and content. We feel that uh, the more we focus on, uh, you know, the actual tooling within the marketplace, the faster that we can help startups get acquired. Gotcha. And transitioning here into the startup industry as a whole, venture-backed startups have spent roughly $8 billion acquiring an estimated 72 AI startups in 2021. What do you think this signals about the future for AI and AI startups? I mean, they're in high demand. I mean... They're definitely getting acquired at a rapid pace. And I would say more broadly too, I know the article you're referring to, it's the Wall Street Journal article, if I'm not correct. Yep, that's it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, there's there's other articles to check out. I believe last year, total M&A activity, M&A stands for mergers and basically acquisitions. Was that above like a trillion or something like that? Um, so right now, frankly, I, I think, you know, when I sold business apps, again, I sold to a private equity firm and it took like three years to find that buyer. And the amount of buyers for software companies, specifically e-commerce and SaaS companies has exploded. It's moved into, I see VC back companies buying other VC back companies. I see bootstrap companies buying other bootstrap companies. I see individual buyers buying VC, like everything. And then also a lot of typical private equity activity, a lot of role plays. So I think there's been a shift in terms of the way to get into entrepreneurship used to be think of an idea, get it funded, whatever. But now you can buy a company that has product market fit. And if you're someone that is experienced in scaling the business, um, that could be you know a, a good route in entrepreneurship. And when we're talking about more recent economic conditions, Deutsche Bank is one of the first big banks to forecast a recession this year, which could lead to smaller and uh, fewer exits and also lower valuations. How would that affect your business? And what are your thoughts? Um, that's a good question. I mean... I don't know. I mean, if if I knew the answers, I'd be shorting the S and P, um, <laughs> you know. But 
One thing I will say is I launched my group choir in January of 2020, right before the pandemic. And right as the stock market was cratering, that was kind of when my group choir took off because people I assume were looking for alternative assets outside of public market equities, sky high, private market, um, angel investing or venture investing. So we, we saw an inflection point. So I mean, my hope as a founder is we do good during a recession, meaning there's still going to be a lot of startups. And I, we have candidly started to see this, like some soft landings and some aqua hires taking place. But yeah, I think it's safe to say that the next year will be interesting to see unfold. But I mean, I don't have a crystal ball, man. I have no idea. Your guess is good yeah. as mine. Yeah, for sure. It's almost impossible to predict the future outcomes of the market. And when we're talking about valuing startups, how do you value an early stage startup? It depends in terms of an acquisition or an investment. In terms of an acquisition. So in an acquisition, it depends on the buyer. And there's a ton of different factors. And one of my least favorite questions that I get from people is, I have a SaaS company making a million in revenue. What's it worth? And the reason I, I don't like that question, because it's kind of akin to asking what's the price of a car. Like, is it a Ferrari? Is it a Corolla with 500,000 miles? Does it have an engine in it? Um, is it growing? Is it flat? Is it declining? Um, do you have like 10 year, like upfront government contracts or something like that? Like super valuable. Is Microsoft like a logo customer? Is it B2B SaaS? Is it enterprise SaaS? There's so many variables. If it's a strategic buyer, you can get some pretty wild multiples. And that's because the business is essentially worth more to that business than it is to the owner of the startup. So that's where you can get like the 10, 20x multiples. But generally that only happens when the business is at scale. And I define scale as usually over over 10 million in annual recurring revenue is generally the, the mark you want to hit. But below that, you know, rule of thumb, two to three times trailing 12 months revenue is usually pretty standard and a good, good acquisition multiple. So it's a multiple on um, usually your financials. But again, you're looking at churn, you're looking at the customers, you're looking at, you know, are there even just uh, bad things? Like, is there opportunities for you know, a new uh, owner to improve the business and grow it and potentially take it from, you know, 2 million in revenue to four or something like that. Um, all those factors kind of combine. So it's, it's, you know, it's like half financial modeling. And then there's a whole other part as well. That's kind of like art. And you mentioned churn. One of the things that I've seen with startups recently is I saw, I'm sure you have too, is Fast recently went out of business and it was rumored because of their super high churn rate. What are some of the things that businesses can do to prevent themselves from going way too fast, too quick and having those high churn rates without being able to make up for them? Yeah, so Fast, I'm not... I'm I'm not an expert on the reason for failing, but it, it wasn't churn. It was um, too high of burn. So what they did was okay. they simply scaled the business too quickly without having strong product market fit. And they were basically hoping to secure another round of funding, but um, wasn't able to, which was kind of hard to watch. Everyone kind of piling on and dunking on founders failing, I think should focus on their own startup. But I think... You know, I think the lesson there is just you don't want to scaling too fast 
like venture capital is, it can be a very dangerous thing when I, I always like the analogy of you want to build the rocket ship first. So if you're building a startup, bootstrap it as long as you can, like as long as you possibly can. Um, because every month that you can go without taking on additional capital, you'll become more confident when you do raise capital and you have a better idea of how to deploy it. Um, but I think uh, what happened with, you know, I'm not going to comment on fast, but just what happens with a lot of startups, they raise too much capital too soon and they don't have that rocket built. And so they shove all this rocket fuel into it and then it just explodes. And when you have a lot of money in the bank, it's typically pretty easy to spend it on things that don't really move the needle for your business. Yeah, I completely agree, especially when you have smaller amounts of capital and you know that's very limited. You are going to be motivated to make sure you allocate that capital in an effective and efficient manner and do the research to make sure you're allocating it effectively. Whereas if you were given anywhere between hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars straight out of the gate and never seeing that much money in your account in your life, you're not going to know how to effectively allocate it as much as if you had a smaller amount. So I agree with you on the bootstrapping aspect. And when we're talking about valuations, according to CB Insights, the median Series A valuations rose to $42 million compared to this, a Series A valuation of $33 million the year prior. What are your thoughts on that data where startups are getting larger checks with lower revenues than their capital base would normally require? Yeah, another good question. I would say the last two years, we've definitely seen a very interesting increase in the velocity of venture investing. And I think a lot of that is driven by the market size opportunities that entrepreneurs are going after today are substantially bigger than they were 10 years ago. Like when I was building business apps, it was a different world. Like a hundred million was like, oh my gosh, if you got there, that was like a $10 billion company today. It was unheard of. Like I remember when Yammer was acquired for a billion dollars by Microsoft, that like shook the whole startup, we were like, oh my gosh, you can sell a startup for a billion dollars. So I think what we're seeing is basically valuations being adjusted to potential outcomes, just these huge outsized returns. Like if you look at some of the biggest startups in the world, they're valued at tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars. So I think the way venture capital works, it's like power laws. So you're really just looking for one of those deals. I'm, I'm not an expert in like how venture capital works, but if you find one of the runaway companies like a Zoom or Shopify or whomever, uh, that could that $40 million valuation is going to seem very, very cheap at the end. For sure. And to wrap it up here, what are your takeaways on the startup industry and where can people uh, find more about your company, MicroAcquire? The last thing I'll say in terms of my thoughts on the startup ecosystem, I think there is just way too much focus on uh, venture capital. What I mean by that is you don't need to raise venture capital to build a successful startup. I think that's just kind of this, the narrative that a lot of entrepreneurs fall into is get into Y Combinator, get into TechCrunch, raise a bunch of money, and then what I, I talk with a lot of founders and then they build these companies that they end up hate, they hate running because now they're under a ton of pressure. They would have been, you know, maybe it's a, a really good 20, $30 million business, but now they're kind of locked into. So I, I would say just like 
there's too much focus on, there's way more focus on venture capital and venture capital is celebrated way more than, you know, actual progress within startups. And I think that needs a shift because when you have an environment like that, you have founders, you know, entering entrepreneurship and thinking raising venture capital is a, a signal of success when young customers and actually building value. And where to find me? Um, you can find me on Twitter, Agazdecki or um, Andrew Microquire. Just uh, go to microquire.com and uh, check out uh, startups that are um, built for required. Or if you're looking to sell a startup as well, um, I forgot to note this, but um, selling on Microquire is uh, completely free for founders as well. So if you have a business and you want to meet buyers, you can go and list it for free. Well, make sure to have those links posted in the episode description down below for anyone interested in checking it out. But one thing I did want to note is I completely agree with you on your point on you don't need to raise venture capital to to build a successful company. I think venture capital has been one of those things that has been extremely hot recently. But some successful companies that have bootstrapped that might many might not even know of are, include Dell, Facebook, Apple, Coca-Cola, and the list goes on even further than that. So many of the multi-billion and trillion dollar players out there started with bootstrapping and you don't necessarily always need to raise venture capital to build a successful startup. Yeah, and last point, um, Microsoft raised a million bucks. The reason that they took that check was to have some validation within Silicon Valley. Um, and if you look at some of the top public SaaS companies today, like Shopify, I don't know, I can't think off the top of my head, but you'll notice a pattern that a lot of them did not raise hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, another good example is Viva Systems. They raised, I believe, $12 million. And their market cap is like $30 billion. So this, this narrative of just, you got to raise a series B and a series A or and C and D and E and F. And just, I think we're going to see a lot of zombie unicorns coming out of that because, you know, you got to continue to impress the next set of investors and that's your focus. And then at one point you start to realize your focus is more on fundraising than actually your customers and that that leads to a, a dangerous environment in terms of building businesses, in my opinion. Excellent points. Well, that wraps it up for today's episode. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to the MBIT podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to leave a five-star review down below. And thank you, Andrew, for taking the time to hop on the pod. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me.